Thank you, Chuck. If you would turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 17, we'll be looking at verses 20 to 37 this morning. I want to make a housekeeping announcement. Uh, this past Wednesday in our business meeting, we voted to approve a time change on our Sunday school and worship times, uh, our Sunday schools beginning in November. It coincides with our fall uh, time change where we move our clocks back an hour, uh, but beginning the first Sunday in November, uh, we will be moving Sunday school times to 930 and so that those of you that are get here at 10 can get here at 945 then. Uh, just kidding. And um, our worship services will be moved to 1045. That's a little more round number. And, and uh, it'll allow you a little more time to get between Sunday school and worship. So 930 and 1045 starting in November. So we will post those times on the on the website, and we'll make sure that you're reminded. Not next week, but November. But if you would, we're going to be looking at verses 20 to 37 this morning, but for time's sake, just briefly look with me, verses 32 and 33. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. We thank you that your spirit had inspired Luke some 2,000 years ago to write this for Theophilus and for his spiritual well-being. And we believe as he was writing this to Theophilus, he was writing it to Fisherville Church to, in 2013. And for every individual that is here this morning by your providence, give us ears to hear, to heed the warning from this passage. To respond accordingly and appropriately. And may your spirit illumine me and empower me to preach it with prophetic force and with grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Judgment Day was the day we did our conditioning test at the University of Alabama. The first day we reported in August, it was called Judgment Day. Unlike UK's Judgment Day last night. <laughs> Season ticket holder up there. Why he would be a season ticket holder, that's another issue. <laughs> but the entire off-season was intended to prepare us for this judgment day, this conditioning test, our winter workouts, even our summer workouts. The idea being if you were prepared for this conditioning test in 
the first of August, you were prepared for the season. And so the entire off-season winter and summer workouts were preparing us for these conditioning tests the first of August. And they were torturous. Now, the winter workouts were not voluntary, but the summer workouts were officially. The NCAA does not allow you to require uh, your players to be there in the summer, but if you were going to make these tests at the beginning of August, you had to be there, essentially. That's the only reason you'd put yourself through that kind of torture, out there running in Alabama heat in July in the heat of the day. Well, there was one guy, famously or infamously, decided that he was just going to gut it out on Judgment Day. His name was Marty Lyons. He was a starting defensive lineman. He was busy that summer. He, he didn't have time to be in Tuscaloosa. And so Marty, being the great athlete he was, decided he was just going to play all summer and do what he needed to do, and he would just gut it out on Judgment Day. Well, on this particular day, you do these series of drills which are intended to wear you out, and then you come and you run a four-lap test called the mile. And those miles are timed. And if you don't make your times, guess what? You run extra during two-a-days and three-a-days. You didn't want to miss your times. Well, Marty Lines devises a strategy. And after he lines up, after doing all of these drills, he's already worn out, already tired. He sprints the first lap of that mile. I mean, it's a four-lap four lap mile, and he sprints the first lap. He's in front of everyone. He's a defensive lineman. Well, the coach was so impressed with his leadership and with his conditioning. He yells out, Marty Lines, that's the way to show leadership. Hit the showers. And Marty takes one step off that track and faints. absolutely collapses right there on the field. It appeared that he was prepared for Judgment Day. And Judgment Day exposed Marty Lyons. Jesus, in this text, and Luke, writing what Jesus says, is preparing Theophilus, he is preparing Fisherville for Judgment Day. Okay? That's what he's doing. The judgment that will occur at the end of history when Jesus returns, and he will return, when he returns to consummate the kingdom of God, a kingdom that was established in his first appearing, okay? When he came the first time, he established, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. But this kingdom will only be consummated and perfected upon his return. Now, as we saw many months ago, many years ago, in his sermon in Luke 4, his first recorded sermon in the Gospel of Luke, we read the text this morning, Isaiah 61. Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, and he opens the scrolls to Isaiah 61. And he read... From Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring 
the gospel, that's the word, to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is the year of the Lord's favor? The kingdom of God. It's the day of the Lord. That's the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of vengeance of our God. Now what's quite significant about that sermon from Isaiah 61 that Jesus preached in Luke chapter 4 is what he omits from that passage. He omits those words from verse 2 and the day of vengeance of our God. That was intentional. Because in Jesus' first appearing, and in the time period after that first appearing, uh, the time period after his first appearing and before his second appearing, this present day is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. The day of salvation. The time of God's patience. The time of opportunity. The time where God saves his people. And that's why when Jesus finished reading from Isaiah 61, he closes with these words, Luke chapter 4, verse 21. Remarkable words. Some of the most amazing words you will ever read in the New Testament. He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He is saying, I am the spirit anointed one from Isaiah 61 who is bringing in the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is saying the long-awaited kingdom is here. Now, what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? We need to know what the kingdom of God is. We're going to understand our Bibles. The kingdom of God is the establishment, okay, of God's saving rule, God's saving reign. Not just his sovereign reign, he has an eternal kingdom. We're talking about his kingdom on earth, his saving reign, and his authority and covenantal presence over the hearts of men and one day over the entire cosmos through his king, the Davidic king, the Messiah. That's what the kingdom of God is. Let me say it again. The establishment of God's saving reign authority, and covenantal presence over the hearts of men through his king, his Messiah, who is Jesus Christ the Lord. But it would come in two stages, wouldn't it? The first stage, his first appearing, he would come and it would be a time of blessing, as I said, a time of salvation. Okay? On the second time he comes, the second stage it will be a time of judgment. At that point, it will be too late to be saved. In other words, the kingdom of God is where history is headed. Which means the kingdom of God is the only ultimate reality. Everything else is mythological. Everything else is transient and temporal, has a termination date. Last night when I'm walking out of those stands, and I've got my Alabama garb on, and my boys have their, their, their jerseys on. <clears throat> and you'd see Alabama fans, just little pockets sitting in the stands. 
And we have a way of just catching our eyes with one another. And you know what's going to be said. You look at them and they go, roll tide. And you say, roll tide. You almost get emotional. (laughs) But many of these fans see this as ultimate. They live and breathe and they die by this stuff. In the end, when the kingdom of God is going to be consummated, all of that is going to be utterly seen for what it is. Confederate money after the Civil War. It will be utterly irrelevant. The kingdom of God is what Jesus came to preach and bring in. And that's why the kingdom of God was the central agenda for Jesus. Right after that sermon in Luke chapter 4, It says in chapter 4, verse 42, I must preach the kingdom of God. He says, because I was sent for this purpose. You can't get any clearer than that. If you were to ask Jesus, why were you sent? He would say, I was sent to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, that would surprise most people today. If you were to ask most people today who are acquainted with Jesus, what did Jesus preach They would pontificate and they would say, well, the central message that Jesus preached is the love of God. Now, no one's denying that he preached the love of God. He was the love of God incarnate. That's not the central message. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God. In fact, the kingdom is mentioned 45 times in Luke, 54 times in Matthew. That kind of tells you That is the central agenda. Which means all of Jesus' words and all of his works, his healing ministry, all of these things were intended to demonstrate that the kingdom of God was being inaugurated in their midst, the stage of blessing, the day of salvation. Yet there's coming a day of reckoning as well. And our text emphasizes that day of reckoning, the day of judgment. And what our text is going to do is emphasize that we must be prepared for that day of reckoning. And the importance of that was really uh, stressed to me this week. I, I saw a statistic in a new survey done by Lifeway Research, the fall of 2013. It's a brand new survey. They surveyed, I don't know how many people, But only 14% of the people surveyed are even concerned about what happens after death. 14 out of 100. Well, Jesus is going to tell us today, you, you better be concerned about what happens after death because it's coming, the day of reckoning. And that discussion begins with a question. Ironically, it's a question posed by the Pharisees themselves. The Pharisees are going to ask, what is the kingdom, or rather, when is the kingdom going to come? And at the very end of the chapter, we're going to see a second question, um, where? (laughs) So let's talk about this first question in verse 20. He says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. 
After the Jews returned from exile in Babylon, they came back to Jerusalem, but it did not produce the long-for kingdom of God. Instead, the Jews suffered under one evil earthly kingdom after another until with the presence of Pompeii in Palestine in 63 BC, it was apparent that the hopes for Israel's kingdom was now considered to be um, an impossibility. In fact, that kingdom uh, was being trumped by the kingdom of Rome. God's kingdom may rule in heaven, but Rome's kingdom ruled on earth. And another point that we would have had to consider at that time is that Israel's history would have shown in order for God's purposes and God's promises for the kingdom to be fulfilled, what was necessary was a new humanity. But in order for there to be a new humanity, there had to be a new king. That was the need of the day. One who will deliver them not just from Rome, but from their sin. You see, your diagnosis always determines the remedy. If you think the problem is political or circumstantial, then the remedy will in some way be related to that. But if you recognize the real problem is sin, then you understand you need a Savior. The Pharisees didn't understand that because they were self-righteous. They were steeped in religion. They didn't need a Savior from sin. They needed a Savior from political oppression. And that's what provokes this question. They didn't understand what Jesus was preaching. So they thought that uh, what they needed was an earthly king who would set up this political kingdom. And earthly kings come with pomp and circumstance, don't they? They come with great fanfare. But not this king. This king had come out of obscurity. He'd been born in a manger in Bethlehem. And just like the kingdom that comes like a mustard seed, this king came as a peasant, and he came to suffer. Now, why did he come to suffer? Again, the diagnosis determines the remedy. The reason he came to suffer is the problem is sin. Your problem is not your mate. Your problem is not your parents. Your problem is not your boss. Your problem is not the political party that is leading our country. Your problem is your sin. And until you understand that, you will not flee to the only remedy, the Savior, the true King. And that's what Jesus is telling them. The King is in your midst, but you don't recognize Him because you have misdiagnosed The kingdom is in your midst because the king is in your midst. The king who will deal with the real problem, the problem of sin. And now he's going to use this opportunity to teach his disciples. Notice in verses 22 to 24, he goes from discussing this with the Pharisees because he he knows they do not have ears to hear to discussing this reality of the kingdom with 
his disciples who do have ears to hear. And here he begins to speak not only about the presence of the kingdom, about the future consummated kingdom when he will come as a judge. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Now, what are the days of the Son of Man? That's not referring back to his first uh, appearing. That's referring to the days ahead when he returns. He knew that they would be longing for him when all hell broke loose on their lives. When persecution broke out, when things got difficult, they would be wondering, when are you going to return? He said, the days are coming when you will long for these days and you will not see it. He says, and they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Why is he using the Son of Man language? Well, that comes back uh, to Daniel chapter 7, one of the very important hopes about the kingdom in the Old Testament. And one like a Son of Man will come to the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days will give him a task. This Son of Man, employed by the Ancient of Days, will defeat the enemies of God on behalf of Of the people of God. He will defeat the enemies and restore the kingdom to the people of God. So that they could possess their inheritance. That's the hope in Daniel chapter 7. And of course we understand uh, that this victory would come ironically through defeat. It would come through a cross. It would come through a resurrection from the grave. But that's why he uses the Son of Man language. And he says the basic reason you don't need to hunt for the Son of Man or look for the signs is that when it comes, when that day comes, it will be very apparent. It's going to be like lightning that's flashing across the sky, across the world. It will be unmistakable. It will be instantaneous. And it will be universal. And yet another factor will play a role, will figure in Jesus' return. The necessity of the, the suffering that he will have to undergo to bring that day in. Notice in verse 25. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. What is the suffering that he's talking about? He's talking about the sufferings of death. His atoning work. This is the fifth prediction by Jesus of his cross. If you're taking notes, chapter 9, verse 22. Chapter 9, verse 44. Chapter 12, verse 50. And chapter 13, verses 32 and 33. This is the fifth Prediction of his cross. Now why is the cross necessary to usher in this kingdom? Because this is not a political kingdom first and foremost. It's a spiritual kingdom. And in order for there to be subjects. 
who will inhabit this kingdom, they must be made fit. They must be prepared for this spiritual kingdom because this kingdom is going to be ruled by a holy and righteous king. And this holy and righteous king cannot allow sinners into this kingdom. They must be as righteous and holy as he is. And so what this king does, he comes as a servant and he makes these sinful subjects fit to enter that kingdom. They must be born again. But the regeneration, the new birth, is grounded in His cross and His resurrection because in His cross, what He does is He takes the anger and judgment that God must pour out on sin and sinners. He does that for everyone who would believe in Him. And then he is raised from the grave. You know what that resurrection signals? That the debt has been paid for those who will believe. But that's why this kingdom is ushered in by a cross and a resurrection. Because it is a spiritual kingdom. But you must believe. That's what he's getting at. If you're going to be prepared for that kingdom that will be consummated when he returns, you must receive the provision the king has given for those who need to be made fit. You must repent. You must believe. You must trust in his work. And now to make this point, Jesus compares uh, that end time with two monumental judgments from the book of Genesis. If you've been with us on Sunday nights, we've seen these judgments. They're quite remarkable. The judgment during Noah's day and the judgment during Lot's day. Look with me in verse 26. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. He's talking about the days of Noah. Until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, Fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. That's the wrath of God. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. A legitimate question to ask from this passage is, what is wrong with these things? Look at them again. Verse 27, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. Verse 28, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. What is wrong with these things? And the answer is nothing. In fact, by these very things, you can glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You can do these things. 
eat and drink and buy and sell and build and plant and marry for the glory of God. The problem comes when your affections, your ultimate treasure becomes these things. And that's called idolatry. That's where the danger lies. In other words, it wasn't their iniquity as severe as that was. It wasn't their iniquity that condemned them. It was their indifference. It was their indifference to the things of God. It's just interesting he doesn't bring out the heinous sins in the time of Noah, in the time of Lot. He's intentionally making a point. You can be a a good citizen. And you can be a productive, flourishing human being. And all the while be under the judgment of God. Simply because you are indifferent to eternal things. Simply because you just place God in a time slot on Sunday. He is a time slot in your schedule. He's not the schedule itself. That's what the point is. And then the judgment fell. So you today can have people who are walking their dog. They're going to a ball game. They're surfing the web. None of these things are wrong in themselves. Going to school, studying, watching a movie, eating at a restaurant, sitting in a Sunday school class. And then the judgment falls. The flood points to the greater judgment that will be revealed in the day of Christ. The day the kingdom is consummated upon His return. Sodom and Gomorrah is a faint picture of that day as well. That's minor league compared to the judgment we're going to see when Jesus returns. A lot of people read in Genesis 19 and and they go, wow. That just doesn't seem to fit the God I worship because the God you worship is an idol. And not only that, what you read in Genesis 19 about Sodom and Gomorrah, that's JV compared to the kind of judgment that awaits those who refuse to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. In fact, the greatest judgment of all has already taken place. took place on a cross. That's the most heinous act in all of Scripture. Where Jesus Christ, the infinitely holy Son of God, holy and blameless and undefiled, takes the wrath of God without measure for those who don't even love Him, for those who spurn Him, for those who are indifferent to Him. And now you wonder, why would... Why would Jesus use Noah and Lot as an example? Because when you read the stories, Noah's not the kind of guy I want my sons to be like. Okay? And Lot is not the kind of guy I want them to be like either. They weren't exactly the poster children for morality and virtue. So why does Jesus appeal to them as examples? It's simply this, because they heeded the warning. 
wasn't because they were more moral than anyone else. They heeded the warning. Noah built an ark. And Lot fled Sodom. Now Jesus is going to apply this day uh, when the Son of Man is revealed. Um, people is... People will not be judged, in other words, because they are more sinful than other people. Okay? You think about a world-class, think about the world record holder um, long jumper. So you've got a world record holder who can probably jump 30 feet or close to 30 feet. And let's envision this world record long jumper is standing on the shore of the ocean. And then you have a little two-year-old kid standing on the shore of the ocean with this world-class, you know, long jumper. Which one of them has the best shot of jumping over the ocean? The long jumper, right? No. <laughs> he has no more shot of jumping over the ocean than this two-year-old girl in light of the vast, the vast territory and distance he would have to jump. There are some people who are more moral than other people, okay? Most people are not Adolf Hitler. But the fact is, in light of the infinitely holy God, there is not a single human being who is moral and righteous and holy and good enough to bridge that distance. You have as much chance of bridging that distance as Adolf Hitler and Mussolini. And so God does not judge us per se because we're more sinful than the next fellow. He judges us because we are so self-absorbed and so indifferent to the things of God that we refuse to embrace and commit to his remedy, his provision for our sin. And there's coming that day, and that day will be urgent. Notice with me in verse 31. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Jesus is referring to some things that people would be tempted to do in that day. A man on a housetop might be tempted to try to save something from his house. And the man in the field might be tempted to do the same thing. There's nothing wrong in and of themselves. It's just it will be utterly irrelevant in that day. It will be useless. It will be like trying to use monopoly money at the bank. These things will be utterly irrelevant in that day. Indeed, there's one in history that infamously tried to do that very thing. Verse 32, very sobering. In my estimation, underrated verse. Remember Lot's wife. It's the second shortest verse in the New Testament. The shortest verse is Jesus wept. The second shortest verse... In the New Testament, remember Lot's wife. But it packs a punch, doesn't it? When you consider it in context. There was never a woman in history 
any more related to the promised seed than Lot's wife. We don't even know her name. She's just Lot's wife. She was as related to the promised family as anyone in history. But no connection to godliness without possession of repentant faith will save you in that day. You could be married to the godliest woman, the godliest man the church has ever produced. And if you don't possess repentant, committed faith, it will not save you in that day. And you know the story, Genesis 19. The angel appeared to Lot and his family, and he said, You must flee and don't look back. And Lot fled. Reluctantly, but he fled, and he didn't look back. But she looked back, and she turned into a pillar of salt. Here's what's sobering. The outside of her was running, but the inside of her stayed. There are many people today running to religious activities. They go here and there. They go to this study and this activity. They run to church. Many preachers are running to pulpits. But their hearts are in the world. We need to be very careful in thinking that what we see on the outside is synonymous with what's going on on the inside. And the problem is not that she looked back per se. The problem was what she loved. Looking back was Lot's wife's way of saying, that's what I love. That's what I treasure. I'm leaving by compulsion, but that's what I love. Remember Lot's wife. Jesus is warning us to have an idolatrous attachment to this world will mean your judgment in the day of the Son of Man. No matter how often you run to church or religious activities. Keep in mind, he's already dressed the the notion of saving and losing one's life for the sake of the kingdom. Luke chapter 9, he says... if. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life must lose it. But whoever saves his life will lose it. And that's the warning we see here. He drives that, home, that point home again in verse 33. Remember Lot's wife Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. This is one of the strange paradoxes that the gospel produces. I mean, the gospel is produced by a paradox. Victory through a cross. And those who will inherit the kingdom must go the way of their king. If you want to save your life, you must die. 
What does that mean? Die to self. Die to idolatrous affections and bow the knee to King Jesus. He is not a time slot in your schedule. He is your schedule. He is your life. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And there are many today in the churches across the world who have a belt and suspenders mentality to the Christian life. You know what the belt and suspenders mentality is? A man who is so overly cautious that he wears a suspenders in case his belt breaks. And he wears a belt in case his suspenders break. What if this kingdom thing is not all it's cracked up to be? I'm going to keep a foot in the world just in case. I'm not putting all my eggs in one basket. What if this is not fleshed out the way the Bible claims that it will? What if it doesn't pan out? And Jesus says, if you do that, you're going to lose your life for all eternity. He's Lord. And if you're going to come to Him in a saving way, you come to Him as Lord. Jadavian Clowney. Defensive lineman for the South Carolina Gamecocks. By all estimates, will be the first pick in the draft in the spring, in April. Just a remarkable specimen of an athlete. But here's been the criticism this year. He's trying to save his life. And so like last week when he played Kentucky, he had bruised ribs. And so he went up to the coach after being cleared by the physician, after being cleared by the trainer, he says, Coach, I can't play today. I don't know why he thought Kentucky would hurt his ribs anymore, but that's okay. But here's the thing. Here's what they're saying. This is the ironic thing. He's trying to protect himself from being injured so that he can protect his draft status. He's being overly cautious. And here's what they're saying. The pundits are saying he's costing himself millions in the process. It could affect his draft status because he's being so overly cautious. He's not playing. He's not laying it on the line. Jesus is saying here, it's going to be much more costly if you preserve your life for the sake of earthly affections. It's going to cost your soul. That's what Jesus is telling the disciples here. In the context, those who preserve their lives are those whose affections are set here. Look with me in verse 34. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in bed. One will be taken and the other left. Now, it, it, is, it is debated whether the one taken is taken for judgment or taken for salvation. In either case, it's really irrelevant. The two have opposite fates. Okay? That's really the point. A lot of ink has been spilled on, okay, if the one is taken, that's the one that's saved in the rapture. Or, there's all that ink that's been spilled, and that misses the point. In that day, there's going to be two opposite experiences. He is saying that you can be near to someone so much so that you sleep with that person in marriage. You're in the same bed, but in that day... 
You will be separated. There will be division. Remember Lot's wife. She was married into the promised line, the family. Again, notice verse 35. There will be two women grinding together. Co-workers who share life together. Most of the people in here probably have spent as much time with your co-workers as you have your family. You have relationships with your co-workers. They will be grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And notice verse 36. Well, you can't because it's probably not in your Bible. Uh, verse 36 essentially says there will be two men in the field. It's taken from Matthew 24. The older translations have it in their Bible, but the newer translations don't. Is it because the newer translations were translated by liberals? No. That's not it at all. In fact, if you have it in there, if you don't have it in there, it's neither here nor there because the same point holds. Just a point here. Uh, since some of the older translations were translated, they have found older manuscripts. The older the manuscript, the better because it's closer to the source, the original autographs. And in those older manuscripts, verse 36 is not in there. And so most uh, scholars today believe that it was added later. But it doesn't change the theology of whether it's really in there or not. He's making his point, and it's clear. There will be people in that day who will be in close, intimate relationships with godly people, and in that day there's going to be a separation. People who have virtually the same situation in life will be separated for all eternity. Because your association with godliness does not mean you are fit for that kingdom. And that is very troubling for the disciples. It's very troubling. And that's going to provoke a question from his disciples. It's a question you've probably not thought about, per se, at least... The answer you've probably not thought about. And they said to him, where, Lord? Where is this judgment going to take place? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. You don't have to know a whole lot. You don't have to know as much as Carl about vultures. And he knows a whole lot about vultures. He knows more about vultures than you do your sons and daughters. But you do know this. When vultures gather, the scene signals hopelessness, death. By the time vultures gather on the scene, the situation is hopeless. He's speaking about the day of judgment for those who refuse to repent of their sins. For those who want to hang on to the world like Lot's wife. Where there is corpses, there the vultures will be. This is the highest of all warnings. And it forces each one of us to ask, am I still in my sins? And is this just a religious thing that I've been doing? Or is Jesus truly Lord of my life? Are eternal issues the real affection and love of my life? Is my heart set on eternity? Or is it set on my hobby? Is it set on my job, my work? Is it set on my family? 
This is the question Jesus is forcing us to ask. Donald Gray Barnhouse, very well-known preacher in the early 20th century in Philadelphia, great preacher, in his commentary on Romans, tells the story of hearing about a man in Philadelphia who was going to die this particular night. And he knew the man by reputation was not in Christ. He was not a Christian. And so he goes to this man's hospital room. The man is still conscious. And Donald Gray Barnhouse begins to share the gospel with him. And this man was utterly indifferent to eternity. Can you believe that? He was utterly bored with the conversation. He's going to die that night. And Donald Gray Barnhouse decides it's time to get radical. So he pulls the chair up next to the man's bed and he says, Can I sit with you through the night? And the man said, Sure, but why would you want to do that? And he said, Because I've never seen a man die without Christ before. And this provoked the man to think. And he realized, I'm not prepared for eternity. And he repented of his sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection. And he immediately entered into the kingdom of God. And that's why Jesus is telling us. That's why Luke has, has penned this. He's preparing us for the consummation of the kingdom. He's preparing us for the day of the Son of Man. How about you? Are you prepared for that day? And if you are, are you telling others about that day? There's coming a day. Let's pray.